Genesis? Well, you know, in the 20th century particularly, Genesis became a lightning rod issue because of uh, the intersection of science and history. And as those things began to emerge and began to what seemingly uh, was contradict and conflict with what the Bible was saying, it really raised two important questions that we've been wrestling with ever since. And that is, what is the Bible? And what do we do with it? And so we wanted to write a book really to dive into those questions of what is the Bible and what do we do with it? And Genesis was a great place to start. Along uh, with Pete Enns, Jared is the co-author of Genesis for Normal People, a guide to the most controversial, misunderstood, and abused book of the Bible. Jared and Pete are also co-hosts of the Bible for Normal People podcast. As Jezekiel mentioned, recently passed 3 million downloads. Uh, Jared's a former professor of philosophy and ethics, co-founder of the Experience Institute, an experience-based graduate program in Chicago. And so we're going to want to invite uh, Jared to speak about interpreting the Bible, especially Genesis. What is the Bible? How do we interpret it? Let's give a warm well, uh, welcome to Jared Bias. Come on up. Thank you, sir. I'm so glad I got to be invited here, even though apparently I can't uh, pronounce the word contradict. So thank you for that. I saw in the video. But uh, I also feel, I would just say, um, feel at home. I grew up in a lot of church plants or, or churches that just started out. My parents and I were going to all kinds of uh, different churches and helping things, faith communities get started. Um, so that was actually me back there on the drums at probably age 12, carrying things in and out every Sunday morning and helping to set up and tear down. So it feels good to be back there. So as Ryan mentioned, over the past 15 years, I've been a pastor, professor in ministry in some capacity and currently the co-host of the Bible for Normal People. And our mission is to bring the best in biblical scholarship to everyday people. It came out of uh, one of my frustrations in graduate school as all these aha moments were happening and all the lightning or the light bulb moments were happening for me. And I thought, you know, why do nerds get to have all the fun? Where is this for everyday people? Why don't we have access to this kind of information about the Bible, things that are so foundational to the way I see life and live life? Why isn't it available? So one of the uh, surprises that we found as we entered the third season here of the podcast is just how many people are going through some sort of faith transition. They have started asking questions, and it started leading them down a road that's different than how they were taught, different than how they grew up, about what is the Bible, what is faith, what does it mean to love well. And we've had hundreds and thousands of people actually write us in, and we have a, a community of about 600 people. We have book studies. We have all kinds, and they're all going through the same sort of transition. And we had Richard Rohr, if you know who Richard Rohr is on the podcast, and he talks about this as a time of Order, disorder, and reorder. As a time of order where we've grown up with what we've been given, we sort of build a foundation, then we start asking questions that seemingly tears all that down, and we go into a time of disorder, or maybe we'll say chaos, foreshadowing for later, uh, and then reorder. Or as our, our good friend Rachel Held Evans, who uh, recently passed away, called it, she said uh, she raveled her faith. Her parents raveled it together in care and in love and did the best that they could. And then as she got older, it began to unravel. And then later, she had to learn how to re-ravel it. Other people call it a time of construction and deconstruction and reconstruction. 
And my passion is, whatever you call it, my passion is to help people not stay in that place of disorder or deconstruction, but how do we uh, resurrect our faith? How do we have something new that guides us in a new direction? Um, and that's been uh, my passion. So I like to think of the Bible for normal people as sort of the Marie Kondo of biblical interpretation. Do you guys know that? So being able to ask the question, does this spark joy? Letting go of the things that no longer do and making space for something new. And so that's what we do at the Bible for Normal People. And it really works with um, the question then becomes, what do we do with the Bible in all of this? And so we come back to the two questions that we ask every single episode. What is the Bible and what do we do with it? Well, I've learned a few things about what I'm pretty sure the Bible isn't. So I would have grown up thinking that the Bible was contemporary, it was unanimous, and it was clear. Contemporary meaning it was for us, written to us and for us right now, and we don't need any interpretive lens. We don't need to have a different mindset or a different way of thinking to understand it in its original context. I grew up thinking it was unanimous, that if you read Genesis, it would say the same thing and have the same theology and thoughts about God that it has in Revelation. And I thought it was clear. Well, uh, scholarship over the last 150 years has told us that uh, none of that's true. Uh, The Bible isn't contemporary, unanimous, and clear. It's actually ancient. It's diverse, and it's ambiguous. It's an ancient text. That should be pretty obvious. It was written a very long time ago in a faraway land and a faraway place. And it's diverse. Not only does it not say the same thing in Genesis that it says in Revelation, it doesn't say the same thing in Genesis that it says in Genesis, right? And it's ambiguous. One of my favorite ways of thinking about the ambiguity of the Bible is uh, when is the Bible trying to describe something to us? And when is the Bible trying to endorse something? So when the Bible says women are property... And so if you rape a woman, you have to pay the husband. Is that describing something or is that, should we be doing that now? How do we know? The Bible doesn't tell us. It's ambiguous. So it's ancient, it's diverse, and it's ambiguous. So what does that mean for us? Well, it has three implications for us today. Three implications that I want to talk about today. For us to go from thinking that the Bible is contemporary and unanimous and clear to move to thinking that the Bible is ancient, diverse, and ambiguous, what scholars have been trying to tell us for about 150 years now, there's an implication for our faith. And I want to talk about three today. And I'll I'll probably talk rather quickly, um, but feel free. We can talk later, afterward. I'd be happy to talk more about these three shifts. But we want to move from thinking about the Bible as a book of facts to seeing it as a book of meaning. And those aren't the same thing. We want to move from seeing the Bible as a book of rules to a book that guides us into wisdom. And then we need to move away from thinking that the goal of the Christian life is to have a set of true beliefs to a life of true love. Those are the three shifts that we'll talk about today. So first, let's talk about from facts to meaning. So the Bible itself endorses this over and over again. The first and easiest place to see this is in Jesus' parables, right? So we have the idea of the, how many of you have heard of the story of the prodigal son? Anybody? Good. Okay. So it's a good example. No one's out there looking for the bones of the prodigal son, right? I don't think any archaeologist at any university is saying, hey, I have a good project. Why don't you give me a million dollars in grant money so I can go find the bones of the prodigal son? 
Why? We understand that the point of Jesus telling that story isn't to tell us a fact about some historical reality, that there really was a prodigal son out there, and there really was a dad and an older brother, and this story actually happened. The point of that, if you think that, you miss the point of what Jesus is saying. There is a deep and profound meaning about what it means to make mistakes and then be welcomed back into the arms of your dad. That's the meaning of the story. And there's also, well, never mind. We'll get, I was going to go, I was going to get a little nerdy, but we'll, uh, so the, the Bible itself has these, and one of the challenges that we have is we don't know when the Bible is trying to tell us, when, it, when is it trying to tell us something that actually happened, and when is it trying to tell us that this is a parable, and I think that's the wrong question, because whether the Bible is trying to give you a historical reality or not, it's always trying to give you a deeper meaning, regardless, it's always trying to give you a deeper meaning. In the ancient world, writing history wasn't important. It's abstract and it had nothing to do with your life. Why would you go on that endeavor? Every piece of history writing was a piece of meaning making. What does it mean for us and our community today? So there's a, there's a, a collection of rabbinic stories called the Seder Eliyahu. And in there, there's a parable that these rabbis tell. And they says there's a master and a servant. You can go back. Don't give it away yet. I got to tell the story first. So there's a, a master and two, two servants, and the master's going to go away. This may sound familiar, by the way. There's a parallel in Matthew chapter 25, but there's a master and two servants who are uh, masters going away, and he leaves his servants. He says, uh, here, I want to leave you with these items, and he leaves a bundle of flax and a handful of wheat, right? So it's a very relevant, uh, relatable parable, a bundle of flax and a, and a handful of wheat, and so the master goes away and one of the servants gets busy and starts turning the flax into a tablecloth and weaves it together. And then he takes the handful of wheat and he starts making out of it a loaf of bread. And so when the master comes home, he lays out on the table the tablecloth and puts the loaf of bread on it. And then the master looks at the other servant who has done nothing and there's just simply a basket with flax and wheat. Still, uh, nothing has been done with it. Again, if ringing bells, Jesus tells a similar story. Unlike the Bible, though, the rabbis in this collection, the Seder Eliyahu, tell us the meaning of the story. Okay, now you can put it up. So the rabbis tell us what it means. The truth is, the rabbis say, when the Holy One gave the Torah, which is their Bible, the first five books, Genesis to Deuteronomy, he gave it to them as wheat, out of which the fine flour of the Mishnah was to be produced, and as flax, out of which the linen cloth of Mishnah, Mishnah was to be produced. Now, the Mishnah is, to oversimplify, I apologize for any Jewish uh, friends we have here, I'll oversimplify, but it's the New Testament. It's their New Testament. Right? So the rabbis tell us, the truth is, when the Holy One gave the Bible to Israel, he gave it to them out of which to do something new, to make new meaning out of it. And so there's a, a scholar, Zetterholm, who actually makes this even clearer and she says this, in other words, the parable suggests that new interpretations of the biblical text are not only legitimate, but desirable and even superior to the original product. For me, I don't know about you, me growing up, that would be called, uh, we'd have a technical term for that. It would be heresy. The idea that we are called, that God calls us to make new meaning, not to go figure out what it all meant back then. How is that relevant to us? but to make new meaning. According to this view, God expects humans to search for new meanings, to develop and adapt the Bible to new circumstances. It is the one who engages in such a project who acts in accordance with God's will. 
not the one who safeguards the original meaning. Our desire to protect, our fear of losing the original meaning keeps us perhaps with that basket of flour and flax sitting on the table and not making something new out of it. The aim is not to establish the original or literal meaning of a given biblical passage or attempt to reconstruct the circumstances in which it is composed, but rather to interpret it and adapt it for contemporary times. Jesus and Paul, if you read the New Testament for about two minutes, you'll find that they do the same thing. You start in Matthew chapter 2, The author of Matthew says, Jesus went down to Egypt when he was a baby and then he came back up in order to fulfill what the prophet Hosea said, out of Egypt I have called my son. If you read Hosea chapter 11, that ain't what he's talking about. He ain't talking about Jesus. He's talking about Israel. In Exodus chapter 4, God calls Israel his son and out of Egypt God called Israel. And that's clearly the context of Hosea. What's Matthew doing? He's making new meaning out of a biblical text. He's doing what the Bible does. He's making new meaning. So in the Bible, facts serve meaning. Facts serve meaning. Not saying there are no facts. We still have to do that work. Scholars do that work quite a bit. What's historically accurate? What's not historically accurate? We leave that to the experts. We leave that to the scholars. That's really uh, fun and fascinating things, and I think it's important for us as a faith community to engage in. But at the end of the day, facts serve meaning. And there's two problems that we run into if we don't recognize that. One, the Bible itself doesn't intend you to read it for facts. That's not what it was built to do. That's not what it was designed to do. We know this because there are contradictions. Again, um, lots of heresy going on today this morning. There are contradictions in the biblical text that tell me not the Bible is garbage and we don't, it's, it's garbage and we need to get rid of it. It tells me that's not what it was intended to do. The biblical editors, the biblical writers aren't idiots. It clues me in to say maybe we're reading it with the wrong purpose. Right? So just a, a quick example, right, uh, of contradictions in the Bible. Who here can tell me who, um, who did, uh, killed Goliath? Elhanan. Right, you got it. We all know that story of when Elhanan killed Goliath, right? Because that's what it says in 2 Samuel 21. But also it says in 1 Samuel 17 that David killed Goliath. Which one is it? We'll see a little bit more of some of these. The second is, the Bible doesn't claim to be facts, and so I think you're disrespecting the Bible if you're looking for it for facts and not meaning. And secondly, the meaning will be missed. Right? My favorite example of this is Jonah. So growing up, the one important part of the book of Jonah is that God can make a whale swallow a human. That's the point. Somehow that's supposed to be some grand meaning. right? But you miss the entire point of the book, which is to say, what do we do with our enemies? Because if you remember, who did Jonah ask for, to uh, repent It was the Ninevites, which is the capital of Assyria, which if you had known in that day, this book was written after the Assyrians wiped out the entire northern kingdom of Israel. So if you don't know that, and you read Jonah, you think, man, this guy is dramatic, right? He said, I'm so angry I could die that you are going to give repentance. You're going to allow mercy for these Ninevites. I'm so angry I could die. Why? 
because the Ninevites had just wiped out Israel, killing hundreds, exiling hundreds and thousands. But I'm over here as an eight-year-old thinking the whole point of the story is that God can have a, a fish swallow a man. The meaning of the story is deep, deep forgiveness, reconciliation, and mercy, even for our enemies. So let's look at a few examples since we're Genesis for normal people. You guys have been reading through that. So I just want to take this example a little bit further and, and talk about the two creation stories of Genesis. So there are two creation stories of Genesis. The first one begins in chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth, and it ends in chapter 2, verse 4. That's the story of heaven and earth when they were created. The second part of that verse starts, when Yahweh created earth and heaven. Well, hold on. I thought we already did the creation thing, just the previous chapter. And then it ends with the two of them were naked and were not ashamed, which as a side story, when I was in college, I went to a Christian college, and lots of people got married in Christian college. That's like the thing you do. I think it might be in the handbook when you go to a Christian college. You have to be married before you graduate, or you don't get your degree or something. And I, so I was going to a lot of weddings, and me in all my maturity as an 18-year-old, anytime there was a card to be signed or one of those pictures that has a big mat around it that you can sign, I would always sign my name with Genesis 2.25. The two of them were naked and were not ashamed. After all, that seemed to be the whole goal of getting married at 18 or 19 is to be naked and not ashamed. So I figured it was appropriate. Okay, so in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we have two creation accounts. And how do we know it's two different creation accounts? Well, we have here, it sounds like two different ones. If you notice in the first one, the word for God is Elohim. In the first creation account, that name is exclusively used for God, which is the generic name. Other cultures in that area would have used Elohim or El as a name for God as well. But in the second creation account, the personal name for God, Yahweh, is used exclusively. Right? There's also other nerdy reasons why we are pretty sure these are two accounts, but I'll skip over to the last one, which is that uh, the contradiction in the order of the days of creation. So in the first day of creation, we have plants that are created first, and then we move to animals, and then we move to humans. Right. Day one, we have uh, expanse created. Day two, we have night and day. Day three, we have the plants. Day four, we have dirt, certain kinds of animals. Day five and six, and then the climax of creation is human beings. In chapter two, when we start over, out of the dirt, first of all, God creates man. Not humans, but man. And then, not only that, but it goes out of its way to specifically tell us in chapter two that it was before any plants were on the ground. So it actually tells you right out this is going to be a contradictory story. We have man, then we have plants, then we have animals, and we have this really strange story where uh, apparently God really doesn't know what God is doing and so parades all the animals in front of Adam trying to find for Adam a helper. And Adam's like, nope, none of these are working for me. Uh, and so God's like, okay, shucks. Uh, Plan B, I'll put you to sleep and I'll take Eve from your ribs, right? And then that Eve is, Eve is created and we have Adam and Eve. Right? So those, those can't happen. Which came first? If we're looking at this story for facts, uh, this is a contradiction. Plant, did plants come before or after people in this creation? Well, it depends on if you're reading the first creation story or the second creation story. So what, what's the meaning of the first creation account? Well, the meaning of the first creation account is that we move from chaos to order, 
That's what we're moving from. We're moving from disorder to reorder, from deconstruction to reconstruction. We're moving from chaos to order. We get this meaning from the second verse in our Bible, which says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and void, right? When I was in college, my professor had two naive and unsuspecting kids get up and he handed them the whiteboard marker and said, uh, in the beginning was the heavens, you know, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and void. I'd like for you to draw up formless and void on the board. And they just stood there, deer in headlights. Or my favorite, the message translation is, uh, now there was a soup of nothingness. Hmm, makes it perfectly clear, Eugene Peterson, thank you. Right? Okay, how do you have a soup of nothing? It's either nothing or it's a soup. I, I don't know how you have a soup of nothing. Right? Well, it turns out that these translations are, um, they are influenced by the Greek. Because in the Hebrew, the words are tohu vabohu. Right? Tohu bohu. Which is fun to say, and you can impress your friends now. Tohu bohu. Which is actually an English word, which means chaos. They've, they've actually adopted it into the English language. It's in the dictionary. Tohu bohu. And tohu, vabohu, formless and void, have very specific meanings in the Bible. If you read all the times that tohu, vabohu are used, you'll recognize that tohu, which is translated formless, is better translated desolate. No veggies. And if you translate the word bohu, which is translated void, it's probably more likely to be uninhabited, which is no people. So we move from tohu, no veggies, to, and bohu, no people. And against this backdrop, Genesis 1 makes perfect sense because we have a climactic moment, day 1, day 2, day 3. What's the climax of day 3? Anybody? Vegetation's created. A luscious vegetation is created. Then we have a second, what we call panel, day 4, day 5, day 6. What's the climax of day 6? Human beings are created. And so the problem that set up in Genesis 1-2, now the earth was tohu vabohu, it had no vegetation, and it had no people, is solved by Genesis 2 verse 4, the climax of day 3, we now have vegetation. The climax of day 6, we now have people. What was chaos is now order. What was no, no inhabitants now has people. What had no vegetation and no life now has, is teeming with life. So that's the meaning of the first creation story. What about the second the second creation story, the meaning is this, Adam is Israel. The second creation story is a parable, a telling of the beginning of the world in terms of Israelite history. Think about it. Adam is actually created outside of the garden, which I didn't know as a kid, by the way. I think all the movies I watched as a kid, Adam was created in the Garden of Eden, and I thought all of the world was the Garden of Eden. But if you read closely, there was a garden God had created. God created Adam out of the garden and put Adam in the garden and then gave, God, gave Adam a command. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In the day that you eat of it, you shall die. Now there's a clue here that tells us that maybe this isn't about facts but about meaning and that is because in the day that he eats of it, what does he not do? Die. Instead, what happens? He's exiled. Sounds a little bit like the story of Israel. I'll put you in the land flowing with milk and honey, the promised land, and I'll give you a command. Deuteronomy is full of these and says, if you eat, I mean, if you obey my commands, you will live in this land forever and you will prosper. And if you do not, you will get kicked out and you will be exiled back into 
the wilderness. So Adam is Israel. And if we put those two stories together, what do we have? Well, what we have is the entire Bible, the entire Hebrew Bible, the entire Old Testament, wrapped up into two chapters. We begin with the problem, there's chaos, there is no vegetation, there are no people, the tohu vabohu, and we end with how God is going to solve this problem cosmically. And the way God is going to solve it is we move from tohu to the promised land, and we move from bohu to a great nation. It sets up perfectly the entire story of the Old Testament. The story of the Old Testament can be summarized into two phrases. In order to redeem all things, God needs a land and God needs a people. And Genesis 1-2 tells us that. God doesn't have a land and God doesn't have a people. So why do we move from fact to meaning? Well, the Bible tells us to. Every major moment in the biblical story doesn't have just one telling, but has two, and each time there are contradictions. We have two creation accounts. We have two sets of the law. Deuteronomy means, in Greek, second telling of the law. We have two histories of Israel, and we thought, you know, we figured if God gives us a book, surely when we get to the really important stuff like Jesus, we'll just narrow that down, and we'll just get one account that gives it to us straight. And then God laughs and gives us four. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which has its own contradictions in those stories. Why? Because they're not trying to tell us the facts. They're trying to give us the meaning. Okay. I've lost total track of time, Ryan, so feel free to uh, give me the hook whenever you need to. Okay. So the question then is, how do we move from fact-finding to meaning-making? How do we move from that? Well, there's... Three tools, but they really rely on this one thing. We've made the Bible everything. This is one of the problems that Richard Rohr has with us Protestants. Is somewhere along the way in the last hundred years, we've gotten rid of all of the other ways in which we experience God. And we said the Bible is the only one that matters. So how do we move from fact-finding to meaning-making? We need to bring these other tools back into our lives. And Richard Rohr calls this a tricycle model of faith. He talks about three different tools, experience, tradition, and the Bible. Well, not to think that I can outdo Richard, but I think he's missing a few. And frankly, I have four kids, and a tricycle like that one, if you know, is actually not that sturdy. I've had many kids fall off of that exact tricycle. Uh, So I think that there's a few things. I think we need to add to those are community and reason. And when we discredit reason, tradition, experience, community as proper and natural ways, which, by the way, for the history of the church, a few thousand years would have very much been a part of how they thought of theology and God. When we discredit them, the life of faith feels very unstable. We don't have a tricycle. We have a unicycle of faith. And we're constantly moving full of anxiety, wondering whether we're going to tip over this way or tip over that way. But when we have all of these other things that are working together in that life of faith, guided by the Spirit of God, which uh, the the New Testament is pretty clear on, that when Jesus leaves, the Spirit of God will be given to us. It didn't say, and I'll give you a book. When the Spirit of God is working in all these things, we find more stability in our faith. All right, that's the first thing, move from fact-finding to meaning-making. The second is we move from rules to wisdom. Because if the, book, uh, the Bible is a book of facts, it makes a pretty good rule book. But if the Bible isn't a book of facts, but a book, an opportunity to make new meaning, 
it makes a pretty uh, terrible rule book, right? And one of the reasons is just because uh, in the same way that the way it describes events to us is contradictory, it actually contradicts itself when it tries to tell us what to do. My favorite example of this is in Proverbs chapter 26, verses 4 to 5. I like this because the contradictions are back to back. Sorry, should be Proverbs. There we go. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you yourself will be just like him. Proverbs 26.5. Answer a fool according to his folly, or he will be wise in his own eyes. Well, which is it? What am I supposed to do? Well, it takes wisdom. It takes integrating our experiences, our tradition, our community, our reason, and then we begin to understand the wisdom of this proverb. Rules exclude experience. Rules say, don't have any experience, just do what I tell you. Wisdom requires experience. If you want experience for how to apply Proverbs 26, just jump on Facebook for a month. I'm pretty sure real quick, you're going to learn when to not answer a fool according to their folly, or you yourself will become a fool, and you will just learn when not to answer a fool according to their folly. Right? So you'll learn the wisdom of that. How do we learn? It's through our experience. I, I would have actually been uh, taught as a kid not to trust my own experience. That I have a heart that's desperately wicked above all things. I can't trust myself. Don't trust how the Spirit of God is guiding you. It turns out, ironically, I was really just supposed to trust the, the white dude telling me what to do rather than trusting myself. Somehow he got to trust himself and I didn't get to trust myself, but that's a different story. So uh, this idea that our experiences are valuable is transformational for me. And there's a story in, in uh, Genesis um, that you may have heard of, and it is, was foundational for me to understand moving from rules to wisdom and how to allow my experiences to guide how I see the world. And it's a story about uh, a man named Jacob. Now, Jacob uh, was the son of Isaac, and he had a twin brother named Esau. And Jacob was a, tr was a trickster. Jacob was a, pretty much most of the major characters in the Bible, by the way, are terrible people, right? That's just the way it is. Um, and Jacob was no exception. He was a pretty terrible guy. He was a deceiver. He was a trickster. He, he was a huckster. He, he would do anything um, and cheat anyone. And we see this climax that his very own twin brother, who was first born, was supposed to get the inheritance of his father. And Jacob comes along and he tricks, he, he actually tricks his blind dad into giving him the blessing instead of his brother. And his brother is rightly pretty upset. And in, in Genesis 27 it says, Esau vowed to kill Jacob as soon as Isaac was dead. Once dad goes, you're mine. And his mom, Rebecca, gets afraid and sends him out to live with some distant relatives, and he stays there for 20 years. And then one day God says, hey, Jacob, I think it's time to go back home. And so he sends a messenger to his brother Esau in hopes that he might, the Bible says, find favor in his eyes. And uh, Esau sends a messenger back in Genesis chapter 32 and says this, we went to your brother Esau, and now he's coming to meet you. And Jacob's thinking, yes. And the verse ends, and 400 men with him. Uh-oh. I don't think he found favor in his eyes. And so Jacob begins to prepare for battle. And he's scared. 
In fact, he basically thinks he's going to get wiped out. So he takes his camp and he splits it into two and sends his family ahead and says, hey, you guys run because Esau's coming after me and at least my family will survive. In fact, he is so afraid, he ends up sending everyone across the river and just sends everyone. He's alone. And then we have this story about how this mysterious being comes and wrestles with Jacob all night long, it says. And at the end of it, Jacob wouldn't let this being go, which we later find out is God, because he names the place Peniel, which means the the face of God. I have seen God face to face and lived. God wounds Jacob. He has a hip wound for the rest of his life. He walks with a limp. That's why I say don't trust anybody giving you religious advice without a spiritual limp. He wrestled with God and he lived. And in that moment, God changes his name from Jacob to Israel, which means one who struggles with God and overcomes. Jacob's experience changed him. It changed how we thought about God. And the next day he showed up humbled and he showed up gracious and there was reconciliation between Jacob and Esau. That wasn't through a book. That wasn't through fact finding. That wasn't through having the right beliefs. That was through an experience with God that changed Jacob. It's not following rules that lead to this life of faith. It's our struggle with God. And we have another word for this struggle. We call it wisdom. That's what it is. Struggling in this community of faith, asking the hard questions, getting it wrong, fumbling around, stumbling around, and through that we gain wisdom. And the Bible is there to help us. Just like a good parent resists answering all of our questions, so does the Bible. It's not an enabling document that allows us to put our brains, our character at the door. It requires us that we build our own character to read it well. We all know that the Bible can be a weapon. The Bible is sharp. There's something about sharp things. It can be a scalpel that heals, and it can be a knife that wounds. The difference is the character and the kind of people who use it. That's wisdom. So does this mean that anything goes? Can we make the Bible mean anything we want? No, there's actually one rule. So I'm going to tell another story of Jesus in Matthew chapter 22. Jesus is uh, often getting trapped by people. There's a lot of pastors in Jesus' day who don't like what Jesus is up to. And so they send these group of, of scholars there to trap Jesus with all these questions. And there's a, a story in uh, Matthew chapter 22 about one of these events. And go back, I'm not ready yet. Giving away the punchline here. All right. So there's this uh, time where the the religious leaders of Jesus' day are trying to trap him. And there was a group called the Sadducees that had just gotten done. I just imagine it as like a gang of people. And Jesus is just like standing over there. And they're all like whispering to each other. And then they send one over there to trap Jesus. And Jesus doesn't have any of it. And then they come back. And then the other group. And so this second group called the Pharisees, they send a, a, a Bible scholar, a PhD from Harvard, out to Jesus and says, um, hey, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? Now, the reason this is a trap is because it's like asking someone in front of their kids, hey, which one of us is your favorite? Which one of your kids is your favorite? We would never answer that. 
It's my daughter, Elle, by the way. But don't tell my sons. Now, this is interesting to me because Jesus is actually asked 183 questions in the New Testament. Someone asked Jesus a question 183 times. Do you know how many times he answers it directly? Three. He answers the question three times. This is one of them. What's the greatest commandment? He thinks he's going to trap Jesus. Jesus answers directly. Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. This is the second. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire Bible hangs on these two commandments. He uses the word law and the prophets. That's a shorthand that, that uh, Jewish people would use to mean all of the Bible. If you go to Barnes & Noble right now and you pick out one of the, a book, a Jewish Bible, it's called the Tanakh. That's what they call their Bible, the Tanakh. And it has three letters. It's an, it's an acronym, T-N-K, Torah, which is the law, Nevi'im, which is the prophets, and the Ketuvim, which is everything else. The Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim, the Tanakh. So when Jesus says the law and the prophets, Jesus is saying all of the Bible, all of the holy writings hang on these two things, that you love God, that you love your neighbor as yourself. The only law, the only rule is love self, love God, love neighbor. That's the only rule of biblical interpretation. Does it help us love ourselves, love God, and love our neighbor better? So if that's true, then we have this third shift where we're moving from true beliefs. The goal of the Christian life is to get all of our facts about God right to true love. From true beliefs to true love. When we're feeling lost with what to do with the Bible, we can just reorient ourselves around this passage. There's one rule, loving yourself, loving God, and loving others. You will spend your entire life figuring out how to do that well. That's what we call wisdom. Wisdom is the messiness of life as we trek through trying to do those three things well. Jesus doesn't seem to care about all the morality that we have made Christianity to be about. I don't see anywhere in the Bible where it talks about rules like, I grew up in Texas, so the rules were uh, don't cuss or drink or chew or go with girls who do, right? I don't see that in the Bible. Don't cuss or drink or chew or go with girls who do. Jesus doesn't seem to be interested in that. I love this quote from my, uh, my friend uh, Jack Caputo, who's a professor. He says this, talking about Jesus. He kept one thing uppermost in his heart, the love of neighbor, the love of God, which was unconditional, the sum of the Torah, and he treated everything else, however sacred it was in other people's eyes, as man-made, conditional, flexible, deconstructible. And his periodic flashes of anger are reserved for those who confuse the latter with the former. So we move from true beliefs to true love, or as John says it in 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions, sees a brother and sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not with love with words or speech, I'll add beliefs. Let us not love with beliefs, but with actions and in truth. 
And this is his command, to believe in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us to. Almost nowhere in the Bible does it tell us how to believe. It doesn't have anything about it, about whether or not we need to condemn or judge someone who believes in a 6,000-year-old earth, or whether we need to judge and condemn someone who believes in a 13.7 billion-year-old earth. There isn't much in the Bible about what to believe. There is a lot in the Bible on how to believe. The posture with which we hold our beliefs. Do we hold them with closed fists or do we hold them with open hands? That seems to be the more important question in the Bible. Our ancestors, by the way, understood this. Sometimes my family, they can be hard on me. They'll say things like, well, that just sounds kind of new agey. All this love. We need the hard truth thinking that uh, this is new, right? I I get uh, accused a lot. We get lots of uh, nice fans of the podcast who send us lots of good, uh, loving mail. And they will uh, send us things like, you're a compromiser with the culture, right? You're just trying to get in bed with the world. Or there's lots of other things that they say that I can't repeat in church on a Sunday morning. And they think that we're making this stuff up out of whole cloth. So I'd like to end today with a a quote by St. Augustine. Have you ever heard of St. Augustine? So famous, they named a town after him, right, in Florida. So he's one of the great church fathers from the fourth century. Fourth century. This is 1,700 years ago. One of the greatest church fathers who's written volumes of, I think I have all of St. Augustine's writing, and it's like an eight-volume set. Thousands of pages. And he says this on his book, On Christian Doctrine. He says this about biblical interpretation. The fulfillment and end of Scripture, all of the Bible, is the love of God and neighbor. Well, duh, Jesus said that. Whoever then thinks that he understands the Bible or any part but puts an interpretation that does not build up the twofold love of God and neighbor does not yet understand the Bible as he ought. So do you need to be a scholar to be a Christian? Do you need to be a scholar to read the Bible? No. That's why it's the Bible for normal people. It's not about facts. We're not on a fact-finding mission using the Bible as a rule book so we can get our beliefs correct. We make meaning out of the Bible in a way that propels us toward a life of faith so that we can love people better. So how do we read the Bible? Well, there's really two steps. We need to respect the Bible, and we can respect the Bible by asking, why is this here? Why is this here in this way? Every careful scholarly reading of the Bible that we've ever encountered, every scholar we've had on the podcast, the thing that drives them is to ask that question. Why is it in the Bible in this way? Not to defend any prior belief or understanding, but simply to ask that question. That's how we respect the Bible. Why is it here? We listen. We seek to understand. So we respect the Bible too. We respond to the Bible. And we respond by asking, what meaning helps me and my community to love better? All right, let's pray. God, I am uh, so grateful for congregations like the well who are seeking something new, who are looking to move from facts to meaning, from rules to wisdom, 
and ultimately from true beliefs, the guilt and the shame and all of the things that have come into uh, at least my life uh, when I was told I wasn't believing the right things, I wasn't smart enough, I didn't know this or I didn't know that about the biblical text and um, how could I not know that? And you just need to listen to us, uh, those of us who are in charge and to move from that to saying, no, I'm enough, I can trust my experiences and I can trust my heart that says I just wanna love people well. And then the Bible serves that purpose So I pray for this congregation that over the coming weeks and months and years that you would guide Ryan, you would guide um, these uh, teams, that you would guide the uh, people in this congregation toward a life of love, that they would work it out, that they would duke it out, that they would roll up their sleeves, they would argue with one another, they would debate with one another, and that they would do that because they know at the end of the day they won't be kicked out. At the end of the day they belong. And they belong because they were made in the image of God. They belong because uh, God calls us to include all people into this great move from chaos to order, into this great move of lack to abundance, from scarcity to enough. And so we just pray for this congregation today. I just ask that you would help them to flourish in the movement toward love. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.